0: Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Today, we have a director, illustrator, beekeeper, filmmaker. He's a writer, a family man, and a famed photographer. He's recognized for his iconic celebrity portraits and scientific photography. He has shot the likes of Bono, Barack Obama, the Dalai Lama, Leonardo DiCaprio, Johnny Depp, and many, many others. He's won over 100 national and international awards that includes the World Press Photo Award. A professional photographer for over 35 years, a Ventura County, California native, and photo historian, please welcome to the show, Dan Winters. Dan, welcome to Before the Lights.
1: Thanks, good to be here.
0: What is your first memory of photography?
1: Uh, First memory of photography that's really salient for me probably was uh, we had a 1964 Volkswagen bus and my mom kept the camera in the glove box of the camera uh, of of the bus. And I went in there one time and I shot an entire roll of myself. So I did like a roll of selfies and kind of. My mom, the way she tells it, she says that I denied doing it, <laughs> which I can't imagine I was that stupid at, you know, nine or eight. But uh, that's kind of my first like burnt in memory. But um, I think my first memory to where I kind of realized that it was an art form and could potentially be a pursuit was um, we had a local friend who had been a Navy photographer during the Vietnam War. And he had a dark room at his house and I was good friends with his son. And uh, I remember him inviting me and his son into the darkroom one afternoon when he was printing. And uh, so seeing the process and seeing the print come up in the developer, it just seemed like such a magic moment and this alchemy of kind of like light and dark. And uh, I think that was the most sort of burned in first first, uh, impression of photography that I have.
0: Speaking of the darkroom, I've spoken with friends of mine and other people I've interviewed. What is it about the dark room with a the photographer? They say it's magic and it brings back these smells and things. Is the dark room like this magical place for photographers?
1: I think uh well I know a lot of photographers that hate the dark room as well. So I think it it depends on your disposition a little bit, but it's definitely a quiet place and it's a place for experimentation and contemplation and patience uh and certainly you know, every time you step in there, that smell, the smell they're talking about is uh, glacial acetic acid. It's uh, it's uh, used for stopping the rapid development of the of the print. And it's a really unique vinegary smell. And uh, it's like every darkroom has that smell. And um, and it definitely is a sense memory that comes up. I mean, that sense memory for me is it takes me all the way back to that first exposure as a kid that I that I spoke about. Um, but the darkroom is, you know, it's a really, it can be a really magical place. And I think the other thing about the darkroom was that in black and white, and I'm speaking only about black and white because color darkroom is a very different experience. Uh, the black and white darkroom, uh, you know, you can really sort of realize what your image is because there are so many ways to interpret it. Uh, Ansel Adams likened the negative to the score and the print to the performance because the score could be interpreted a lot of different ways. It could be arranged differently. And printing is a very similar thing. You know, there are a lot of different, There's there are bad prints, but there are certainly a wide range of, of ways to interpret an image. And they can all present sort of a different emotional spectrum. Um, there was a great show at L.A. County Museum years back of Ansel Adams. And uh, there was one of his his uh, blue chip images. It was called Moonrise Over Hernandez, Mex- New Mexico. And uh, there were probably like 10 or 12 iterations of that individual image on one wall. And it spanned his entire career from the 40s until the last interpretation of it. And it was such a vastly different image. It got darker, it got more dramatic as time went on. And you really could see as a viewer, like what the possibilities of the dark room were. So it is a magical place. And, but I do think it's not for everybody. I mean, there are guys that they're, you know, very famous professional photographers that didn't want to step near it. You know, they had lab techs they had people that printed for them. They didn't, you know, they didn't go there. But uh, I think for some people that really kind of are on a quest, it's, it is a really magical place.
0: Do you remember what your first camera was?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, the first camera I got was uh, I kind of came to photography a little bit more through film because uh, my friends and I would make these movies, these like army movies and sort of like spy movies and stuff. And we would use the camera. The first camera I got that was actually my camera, which I still have actually was a uh Kodak uh, Brownie eight millimeter movie camera, not a super eight, but a dual eight, it preceded super eight. And I got it from my granddad. And um, I think one of the reasons that I got more interested in photography as time went on is the disappointment of uh, waiting for a week or two to get the film back and having it be like underexposed or overexposed and not really having a technical sense of how to to, uh, deal with the materials. And so as time went on and I got more serious about making movies, um, you know, I got a light meter and I learned how to meter and, you know, I, you know, my disappointment, uh, diminished quite a bit when I would get the film back. But, um, I also simultaneously kind of started gradually, uh, gravitating towards doing still photography. I mean, I still do. I still do, uh, film stuff. And, uh, we just finished a short film, actually not too long ago, but, um, but I think that's, that was kind of the moment for me. In
0: 1979 in high school, you were working full time in the motion picture, special effects industry in a miniature construction and design. How did you balance full time working in the motion picture industry and going to school?
1: So at my school, I went to Park high school in Ventura County, and uh, we had a program for seniors that had completed all their compulsory credits mm. And it was called work experience and uh so i would go first period and second period and then immediately after second period i would drive down to the model shop where i was working and work till about eight o'clock at night and then turn around go back and do it the next day um it was kind of a pass fail thing it was just like you could have a job uh if you'd already completed all your classes and i wanted to work in model building uh really, really, really badly. Um, I started pestering a, well, what what was at the time ILM industrial light magic, I started pestering them and sending them photographs of my models, uh, that I would scratch build and scratch build spaceship models and things that were inspired by star Wars in 2001 and alien. Well, at that time that was pre-alien, but, um, You know, I'd take pictures of them, which is where the still photography kind of really started to burgeon and uh, send them down there. And eventually I landed uh, a model building job, not at ILM because they moved up to uh, up to Marin County, but uh, with another model shop that some of the model builders that were at ILM brought me on board.
0: You began your career in photography as a photojournalist in Thousand Oaks, California at the News Chronicle. What did your days as a newspaper photographer teach you that you've taken with you throughout your career?
1: So, you know, I, I was talking to my son yesterday about what was the best. He asked me what the best time in my life was because he's 27 now and he's trying to figure out, I think like, did I already miss the best time of my (laughs) life or is it coming? And I said, I have a whole bunch of those and they're incremental And, you know, the newspaper job was certainly one of those best times of my life. Uh, But it was, you know, it's a a progression. You know, if if you ask me what's the best time of my life, I'd probably say I'm totally happy with where I am right now. But um, the thing about the Chronicle was it was very romantic. Uh, You know, I lived in a trailer. I had a 62 Volkswagen bug. I had my vest, you know, my photojournalist vest, my scanner, you know, my police and fire scanner my cameras around my neck. And it was, you know, it was like this amazing thing. You know, I'd show up for work, go to my mailbox, pull out my assignment sheets, see what I had to do that day, listen to the scanner all day. If I had a darkroom day or whatever it was. And um, I think the thing I learned the most from the Chronicle, and it's something I speak to students about quite a bit is the, is the process of showing up for an assignment And getting to the point where you're actually photographing, because that's one thing I don't think you can really teach, you know, it has to do with people's uh, skills at interaction with other people and putting people at ease, your own comfort level with your abilities, those things. Um, But I learned because I was doing two to three assignments a day, um, how to get in, how to get the picture and how to get out. And the other thing I realized at the Chronicle early on was I I knew I wanted to be a magazine photographer. Um, I loved being a photojournalist. Don't get me wrong. It was incredible. It was exhilarating. I felt like I was a part of a family. The paper I was at was doing really, really well with contests and winning awards for photography. And so we had a really great tight knit photo staff. Um, But what I realized is like every single assignment was an opportunity to experiment to push my technical abilities, to push my abilities with regards to you know how I wanted to to sort of present the subject, making decisions about presentation, and those were all those were all skills that I honed there that I've taken all the way through my career. You know those are consistent uh, with regards, regardless of what we're shooting. You know those are you know making those decisions, having conviction, establishing intent. You know, what's my intention for the day with this inv- individual shot? Because I think when you establish a ten- tent, uh, kind of everything kind of falls in behind that, you know. So I think the the newspaper experience was was phenomenal. And it was, like I said, it was like this. It was very like um, the Rockford Files, you know. Mm-hmm. I was like living in a trailer and very sort of loosey-goosey uh, kind of, you know. It was just a really romantic kind of uh, job
0: Now you got me walking to, uh, go watch the Rockford files again. As soon as you said that, bringing back some memories there. Mm -hmm. When I say the, the name Irving Penn, what comes to mind? The man,
1: he was always a hero of mine. The thing I loved about Penn was that he was able to interpret, uh, a really broad range of subject matter. You know, he wasn't sort of like a one trick pony, you know, he had a lot of different ways of working and, uh, he was a technical master and, uh, he was able to create portraits that you really felt like he was able to extract something special from his subjects. And, uh, yeah, he was always a great hero of mine. You know, it was always that joke about like in the photography world about, you know, Penn or Avedon kind of thing. Like, who do you like? And of course I love Avedon as well, but Penn was always kind of the guy that, uh, that um i was most excited about uh in in regards to like the publishing world.
0: In some of the research that i did for this interview, you've been compared to Irving Penn. How does that make you feel? Uh
1: i you know it's funny the uh, National Portrait Gallery had a big Irving Penn show and they asked me if i would speak on the opening night and for me i, I you know it was like the great i almost Couldn't believe that they were asking me to do that. It was such a great honor for me. um, As Penn was such, like I said, such a hero of mine. And then being sort of like asked to participate in that capacity was kind of incredible. Um, And then, you know, I I saw that uh, the podcast that that one individual posted about it. And I was really flattered and honored that, you know, people would make that connection, to be honest. Not entirely surprised because I really, If there is a career that I modeled my own on, I would say, with the exception of like Penn did a lot of fashion stuff for Vogue because he was a Condé Nast contract photographer. Um, I don't do a lot of fashion work, but um, I would say Penn would be would have been the the one that I would I would have admired and maybe modeled my sort of working method uh, after. I don't think my work looks like his. There's crossover sometimes, but um, I think I I. I, you know, I think to your to your point, to your question, yeah, incredibly honored to for people to even draw that correlation.
0: In 2000, you moved to Austin, Texas. You have your studio in a historic building that was built in 1903 and was a general store, a gas station and a post office. When you take over this building, Dan, was there anything left over from way back then that you were able to keep or was it just completely emptied?
1: Uh, The Building was empty. Um, It's funny. It's in a small community, about 22 miles outside Austin. And uh, the post office boxes are in the garage of one of the guys that lives up the street. Who's an old timer, the potbelly stove that used to be in here is in someone else's garage. So those pieces are around. Um, I couldn't really put them in here because I need the space. Um, The one thing I would say that remains from the time gone by uh, is the old gravity uh, gas pump? It was put in in the 30s, and it's still out front. And I knew the actual owner of this of this. Uh, he ran the. I know the the gentleman that ran the general store. He ran it for 40 years, I think. His name is Hudson Dildy. He passed away in 2003, but he uh, he kind of told me the whole history of the place as far as he knew it. And uh, they had replaced the uh the gas pump with more modern pumps in the 50s but he liked the way that pump looked so he didn't have him take it out and so it still stands it's kind of the uh sentinel that stands before the building to this day
0: that's pretty cool that is really cool and it's cool that you're in a building that has such historic history to it as well how did you get into celebrity portraits
1: so uh, Once again, early on, when I was at the News Chronicle, I really enjoyed doing portrait assignments. And a lot of the guys or several of the guys there didn't really like doing portraits. They liked doing sports and spot news. So I would trade new I would trade sports assignments for portrait assignments with them because I really enjoyed doing portraits. And I started taking lights with me and experimenting with lighting. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I love the interaction with people. And uh, when I moved to New York, I moved to New York and I worked with a photographer, Chris Callis, for a year. And right at a year, I left and went on my own. But during that time, I had looked at a lot of magazines. I'd go to magazine stands and sort of scour the racks and kind of figure out where my work or where my idea of my work uh, could live. And I realized that there was always a need for portraits, you know, every magazine I looked at you know, current portraits of people, you know, regardless of what they had. And I was like, really, and still am really into music. So I'd look at music magazines and arts and culture magazines. And um, so I tried to fill a portfolio up in that year period of time. when I was with Chris, I tried to fill a portfolio up with portraits. And what I did in that, in that time was I basically photographed, friends people i'd met socially i'd say hey you know can i do a portrait of you Uh, bring them to my little studio and i'd set up lights and shoot it and that's what my initial portfolio was when i went out and started dropping off at magazines i didn't have any any one of you know note really uh in my in my portfolio it was just uh it was just a way to show that i could shoot portraits in hopes that i could get portrait assignments and sure enough, right off the bat, I started getting portrait assignments. You know, it, it's an interesting, it, it works in an interesting way. You know, publicists have a lot of power. And in that time, in the 80s and 90s, they really reshaped the way the photo industry interacted with the talent. Uh, there was a time in the 60s and 70s when photographers would go, and hang out, you know, Bob Gruen and Jim Marshall and Annie Leibovitz, uh, to name a couple of them, would really hang out with the band or ride on the bus or go on the plane and really get a lot of access. And uh, publicists kind of started in the 80s to really like squash that and things became much more like structured. And uh, so portrait sittings then were scheduled to within, you know, a time slot and a location where they needed to be. And it became a much more structured thing. So I was kind of at the tail end of that. So I was able to actually work with artists at length and also see that switch over uh, to where it became kind of a more structured sort of almost like corporate type uh, environment. Um, I know you had Matthew Sweet on your show. And, uh, I worked with Matthew a couple of times in the eighties, late eighties, uh, early nineties, I guess. And, uh, and we had a very similar thing where it was a very like back and forth, a lot of time experimenting, you know, it was really like a great collaboration, you know, uh, and the, the level of collaboration, I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, Kind of related directly to the amount of time you're afforded and what the constraints are with the, the shoot. But I could give you an example of a, a shoot now could be something like uh, you know one hour for hair and makeup, one hour in front of the camera, three o'clock, Culver City, you know, Smashbox, wherever, whatever studio we're going to shoot at. And so it's a, there's a very structured thing. So you know, the idea is like to come up with the approach prior to the arrival. Uh, everything's got to be in place, hair and makeup are in place, stylings in place. Now that's not a new model by any means. I mean, when Penn would do settings, uh, portrait sittings, a similar thing happened, you know, hair and makeup and styling would be there and the sitter would come and and arrive. But I think the level of uh, collaboration, I think is kind of my, it's sort of like in radio when they started doing playlists instead of letting DJs like, do Freeform Radio, you know, it just became a little bit more controlled.
0: I mean, you've photographed so many celebrities. Is there one that comes to mind that you just really enjoyed shooting for whatever reason that was?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I've collaborated with several people that I really love to shoot. I love to shoot Tom Hanks and uh, quite a bit. And uh, I've photographed Sandra Bullock probably 30 or 40 times. Um, But I think my favorite shoot, just holistically, Uh, from sort of start to finish and the experience of it and the genuineness of it and the amount of time I was able to devote to it, which was considerable over a three day period was when I photographed Mr. Rogers uh, for Esquire. Mm. Um, You know, I was trepidatious going into it. I had no idea what I was in for. You know, I wasn't one of the kids that was raised on Mr. Rogers. You know, I grew up between Moorpark and Somis. We didn't have cable He was on a PBS station. We didn't have couldn't get the PBS channel when I was a kid. So he wasn't a part of my childhood, like so many uh, people that I've shown that image to. My God, people have such an amazing reaction to it uh, or those images. But um, but it was just the most genuine. And, you know, you know what it is to a friend of mine, Courtney Valenti, she's a president of a production at Warner Brothers. I had a conversation with her one time and she said, I can always tell a lot about a person by how they treat their assistant. And, you know, because they can put on a good face to me, but when they turn around and bark orders, you know, I really can see sort of their, their sort of genuine self. And his assistants and people that were involved in his show over that three day period at any given time were coming up to me and just kind of pulling me aside and saying, you know, I just want you to know I've worked for Fred for 22 years and I've never met a more amazing person. And this just repeated itself several times. And just the genuineness of him and the playfulness and the the kindness, you know, was amazing. And then I think the other thing was when I got home and we still have this message. But when I got home, there was a message on the answering machine. My wife said, you got to listen to this. And it was a message from Fred basically just saying, I hope you got home safe. And I hope Catherine and Dylan are okay. Like the idea that he remembered my wife's name and my son's name when I, he asked me one time what their names were and he remembered it, or I don't know if he wrote it down or it was kind of like, it was a little bit, it was kind of a really special, amazing moment. And I really hold that one dear, that, that, that shoot um, of all the shoots. And I've done, you know, many, thousands of shoots in 35 years. But I think that's one that really stands out. There are quite a few, but that's, that was kind of a really magical human shoot. I think that stood out. Hey
0: everybody join the all new members area on my before the lights podcast website, the salute chin chin package includes access to the extra five shout out on a future show, some bonus content. The zoom calls are going to be starting again soon. Also, we're going to have some rewards for you. Get the brand new limited edition poker chip. It looks absolutely fantastic. You're going to get 10% off all merch as well. Your name added to the show notes. To join for only $7.99 a month, go to beforethelightspod.com support. That's beforethelightspod.com support. Dan, to you, what makes a good portrait?
1: Well, the thing about, you know, we talked earlier about, or I talked earlier about establishing intent. And I think there isn't sort of a bad or a good only because we all possess the full range of emotions that human beings, or most of us do anyway, that human beings are capable of expressing. And so, you know, an over-the-top laughing portrait as just as valid as like a somber portrait, I tend to gravitate more in my own work to photographs that feel a little more introspective, that are gentle, that are disarming, that the viewer can connect to the subject. I think a big piece for me is like, you know, this photograph, the intention of this image is for the person looking at the image to have some sort of connection with the person in the photograph. And, um, and I think that that's kind of what I strive for in my own work. But I mean, I've seen, you know, I've made funny images, I've made You know that work well um in that genre that's very difficult humor and photography is very difficult to do you have to have the right subject to pull it off but um well unless you're doing like really deadpan humor then kind of anybody can do it but uh i i personally like you know introspective quiet portraiture personally but um and i also like the idea in a lot of my work i like the idea of creating worlds. Where the viewer can look at the photograph and wonder where it was made and under what circumstances it was made and and wow where is that place you know a lot of times we'll build sets that are very sort of otherworldly or sets that are of environments that are are uh, uh unique and i like the idea that And I get this a lot when I once again, when I speak at schools or if I or if I speak or if I lecture publicly, uh, you know, asking questions about like, where was that shot? You know, how did you where was that? You know, and a lot of times it's well, it was a set that we built. I designed and we built the set. And um, that's a that's a kind of satisfying piece. You know, Penn did some different you know, he did this they called it the pen pen, which is it was kind of a corner of a room. And you would kind of put people in there. And it was kind of an awkward environment to be in. And um, they're sort of trapped, you know, and uh, that was one way to go about kind of like, causing some sort of tension. I did a um, I did a portrait of Al Pacino for the New Yorker. And um, the only thing I wanted to talk to him about he's got this huge career with all these incredible films and I'm a huge fan of his, but I really was excited to ask him what it was like to be photographed by Irving Penn because Penn photographed him two times, once early in his career and once later in his career before Penn passed away. And uh, he, so he told me the whole story of like, you know, showing up at the studio and, you know, getting right to work. And just, he said, just like we're doing right now. And, So I was really, I was really excited to hear that, hear that story. I think that's the only person I've ever photographed that Penn also, no, I photographed Nicole Kidman, Penn had photographed her. There are probably several that have crossed over, but, you know, he was kind of like one in two generations and three generations before me, you know, he was very much my senior when I started uh, shooting, you know, so I was not getting like the big A-list stuff, but, To answer your question about uh, I'm going to circle back to a question you asked earlier, which is a great question. And something just occurred to me. And that was that, you know, how did I start getting portrait work or how did that go? What what was that process? So showing that portfolio of portraits, uh, I started to get assigned portraits and most of the portraits were people of some note in their field or people of note in their field but not people that were public uh, sort of on the, on the consciousness of the public or on the tip of their tongues, you know, they're a little bit more obscure and that went on for a while. And uh, I really felt like I was generating really good work and I love the subjects I was getting, you know, scientists and artists, you know, painters, writers, uh, other photographers, William Wegman, I photographed. Um, but there was one moment, like a defining moment in my career where uh, I did a, I got an assignment to photograph Denzel Washington uh, for the New York Times Magazine. And um, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I talked to the stylist, and she brought the wardrobe by the studio a couple days before so I could see it. And there was a, one specific kind of olive suit that she had pulled, and I was like, this is perfect. And so I built this environment uh, by myself. I didn't even have an assistant on the job. I built this environment that was kind of this back room of like a juke joint in the south. I had I, seen this book by Bernie Imes called Juke Joint, where he photographed all these different like juke joints, and um, and I really liked the feel of this kind of like really like lived-in environment. So I built this forced perspective set of him and put him in it and photographed him, and it was the first time I would experienced one of those uh moments where the photograph ran on monday on a sunday in the times magazine and on monday the phone was like it wasn't ringing off the hook but i was just started getting all these assignments Mm -hmm. because for that was the first time that i had photographed what i would consider like an Mm a-list at least an a-list actor Uh, i'd photographed other actors but once again you know this was uh coming out of uh when he did x And uh, um, he was, you know, very well known. He had done glory and he was incredible in glory and he did X and he was incredible in that and Malcolm X. And uh, so that was kind of the first time that I think, and you know what it is, what's funny to me. And I tell students this once again, I, I know I'm sort of at infinitum, talking about telling students things, but the idea of like passing on that experience is important to me. But the idea of, Oh, that, you know, there's no, bad assignments, there is only bad execution. And uh, I think we have to have like a toolbox that is our own in case we need to revert to it. But I think if we lapse into formula, that can be, you know, I think an artist stops growing if he lapses into formula. You know, you you talk about, you know, the sophomore record is the hardest record for a lot of bands Mm -hmm. because, you know, they want to grow. But the expectation is we want more of the same we want more of the first record, you know, and if you're a band like The Doors, you know, your second record sounds pretty similar to your first record because most of that material was already written and Morrison just wanted to evolve. And, you know, so the records started to evolve. And, you know, if you look at like probably people's lists of Doors records, like the first one's their number one record, their second one's the number two, record, you know, but bands struggle with the second record oftentimes. But I think oftentimes In retrospect, like Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys is considered like one of their best records, but it totally bombed because people wanted, you know, their first record, Hello Nasty. That's what they wanted. They wanted more of that. So the idea uh, applies as well to photography and commercial photography specifically is the idea that we saw that picture of Denzel. Can you make something like that for us? And that's frustrating because, of course, you did that. And you want to move on beyond that, but there are ways to navigate that you know there are ways to make a picture that's reminiscent uh, of another picture that's not sort of self plagiarism you know and I think that's often been a challenge throughout a career if you look at Penn's work his entire body of work he has several ways of working that are consistent over like you know a 50 year period you know and they're similar. Avidon did the same thing for his entire career you know it's like one big umbrella white background open shade, white background, you know, very, very similar. And the trick was then for both of them and myself is to within that parameter that you set, get something that's compelling and that emotionally affects people. And I think that's your sort of your goal as a portrait photographer to sort of affect people emotionally.
0: Dan, with everything you've done and I can hear it in your voice. And as you tell about your career, where does this thirst for your creativity come from? It's a
1: really good question. Um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think it's unique to each individual for myself. Uh, making things, drawing, you know, from a very early age, creating, because ultimately what we're doing is we're, you know, we're taking the world and we're making stuff out of it. Right. So I'm making photographs or drawings or films or, books uh so i'm like generating stuff now you could look at it as like legacy you know everybody's working on their legacy you know the idea that i want to be remembered for something you know what did i do of import am i significant is there any significance in what what my pursuit has been it's maybe more important to some people than others Um, for me i've always loved the creative process and this you know my wife makes jokes about how i'm basically like 58 a 12 year old who's in a 58 year old body because I'm basically doing the same thing I was doing when I, and I see it myself. I see it, you know, I go home and I have a model shop upstairs and I go home and build models and like listen to music. And it's kind of exactly the same thing I was doing when I was in like seventh grade (laughs) and, uh, and then doing photography, it's the same thing. Either I was taking pictures of my friends or now taking pictures of people of note, uh, in luminaries in their fields, regardless of what the field is. And, um, and, uh, I think it's just a desire for me. Like, I don't think about it as like, I, I need to create a legacy. Although when I, it's more like I need to make another book. And I do understand though, that those books are my legacy and are the legacy that we leave behind, you know, like that body of work, because creating that work for periodicals or advertising uh you know it only goes so far right so that Mm -hmm. magazine is gone after a couple weeks it's in someone's recycle bin or it's in someone's you know they used to joke about it being when i worked at the newspaper that it would be under a parakeet in three days so don't worry about it you know (laughs) which i thought was kind of funny but um so the legacy there, there really is nothing that's tied to your legacy because those are such short term presentations of the work. So the idea of like putting it together cohesively, it also allows me to reflect on sort of what I've done, what I've done wrong, what I would do differently and try to learn from, you know, those experiences. But I think that creative process, uh, it's certainly, you know, it certainly differs from person to person. I think, uh, you know, I have friends that are, you know, neurosurgeons and I've talked to them about their work and, you know, it's a, I draw a very similar, very similar, uh, connection when we speak about it, uh, passion, you know, it's like, it's really like a physical manifestation of our passion is sort of what our work is, regardless if it's, you know, what you're doing or what I'm doing, what my friends are doing, you know, we're all, trying to go through life, expressing our passion. And um, and I think ultimately that's probably what the creative process for me is, is the idea of like allowing my passion to sort of like manifest and in a way that others can experience it.
0: Listeners, go to my show notes. You can go to his website, danwintersphoto.com. I'll put a link to that as well as links to all of Dan's books. He has three of them. Dan Winters, Periodical Photographs. There's the last launch, the final launches of Discovery, Endeavor, and Atlantis. And Road to Seeing, New writers. So I'm going to put a link to all his books there in the show notes and his website. Dan, how long would it take you to put out all the images you've taken in your lifetime?
1: Well, there's actually six books. Or six. <laughs> well, there's one that's very difficult to find. It was done in 1999 called Dan Winter's Photographs, but it pops up on eBay and Amazon periodically. That's a tough one. Uh, Road to Seeing, Um, then there's The Gray Ghost, is uh, street photography in New York. And then there's a book called uh, Dan Winter's America, Icons and Ingenuity. And that's kind of a survey. That was from a museum exhibition. That's sort of a survey of, uh, of work over, you know, maybe 25 years or something like that. So those are them. And then we have other ones we're working on now. But um, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think I probably have, you know, of material that I have now and material that I'm kind of developing, maybe like five more books and then probably some like retrospective books. Um, I think one, two, three. We have four that we're working on actively right now. And uh, there's a few other ones that, well, five we're working on actively. If I count the Permian Basin project, I need to go finish that. But I spent a bunch of time working on that one too. So it, it would take a while. Books take usually, I, I kind of, you could do a book in a year. Uh, you know, the idea of like editing it, laying it out, getting it press ready, having it printed, having it shipped uh, you know, I usually say like about a year, uh, you could do it a lot faster if you wanted to fast track it, but that's kind of the, so I don't know. It would take a while. I, ho- hopefully, uh, you know, I'll still be generating work. Although my guess is that later in my life, most of the work will be kind of retrospective type work, you know, like I, I can't imagine that I'll be generating in my eighties, you know, the amount of work that I can generate now in my fifties, Um, and which is fine. Um, that's just the nature. If you look at Penn's and Avedon's work, uh, later in life, you know, their books are all their survey books, you know, which makes sense. You know, they're, they're kind of like, I did all this, you know, I'm not doing this now, even though they both kept shooting right till the end.
0: You've have over a hundred awards. You have print and advertising and music clients. You have permanent collections, solo exhibitions. What are you most proud of, of your career?
1: Uh, in, in my career with regards to imagery, uh, and regards to sort of, uh, affirmation, accolades, etc., cetera, probably world press. Uh, that's a big honor to get a world press. That's kind of like the, you know, that's a big one. And, uh, I also got the Al- Alfred Eisenstadt award, which for, for, magazine photography, which for me was huge because I was a huge fan and still am of Eisenstadt's work And to get that award for magazine photography for me was, you know, I I think ultimately what all the awards are and is really kind of if you look at them as like affirmation, like I'm on the right track, like, okay, I'm on the right track. Like, I feel like I'm doing something right. I'm being acknowledged by my peers. Um, You know, I was talking to someone recently about, you know, I was at a photo festival in Switzerland last month. And I was talking to another photographer and, uh, you know, the the topic came up about sort of like accolades. And I was like, you know, the bottom line is no one knows who we are except for within our community. Like no one knows photographers. You know, if you ask a person, a photographer, they'd say Annie Leibovitz or Richard Avedon, maybe most people across the country. If you went to Lincoln, Nebraska, and ask someone to name a photographer, they wouldn't be able to name one photographer, probably. So it's not like we know, and I'm not saying there's a lack of intelligence. There's just, and if you were in New York, people could name a lot. It just depends, you know, Mm -hmm. but I don't think, you know, many photographers have ever made it to like household name status. And so we take the accolades and recognition lightly, but also knowing that within our, industry and from our peers, the acknowledgement is, you know, it's significant and not to be sort of taken for granted, I suppose.
0: I said in the intro that you are also a beekeeper and have beehives in the backyard of your studio. When did this love for beehives start and how long have you been doing it?
1: So I was in um, 4-H, which is a, 4-H is a club for, I don't know if people don't know what 4-H is anymore. It's a club that was started in 1911 by the Department of Agriculture. It's a government program. And the idea initially was it acted as like a vocational school for rural America when we were more agrarian, the idea of teaching trades to kids so that they would have something they could, you know, make a living off of. So it... Encompasses a pretty broad range of disciplines, uh, and it's it's really bolstered by the people in the community that are actually the leaders. And so, in any given community, so mine was Moore Park, or actually homemakers, 4H. Uh, within that community, we had a photography instructor who was my friend's dad, who I talked about. We had a beekeeper, a beekeeping instructor. Uh, his name was Richard Ron. He was a commercial beekeeper and he volunteered to teach a beekeeping project. There are only like three kids in it or four kids in it. But, um, you know, I bought my first beehive off of him when I was nine years old. And, uh, by the time I was in high school, I had 36 hives and I was selling honey. And, uh, I really, you know, I, I studied entomology as well for many, many years, nine, So I started when I was nine in entomology until I was 18. So, uh, nine years and, um, and, uh, really always connected with insects and insect world and really love insects. And beekeeping is kind of a great extension of that because it's kind of the only domestic discipline, uh, domesticated discipline with insects is beekeeping um so when I was 9 I started I sold my hives when I went to college uh and I started back up about 8 or 9 years ago I got a couple hives uh now I have 3 we just harvested 27 pounds of honey uh, and I'll do a little bit more harvesting right before winter because I left them a lot now I'll go see what they produced it's been a really wet year which is really good for honey uh really good for honey production so, yeah, it started as when I was a kid. Like I said, I mean, it's like pretty much do all the same stuff I did when I was a kid. Uh, there's a uh, photographer called Jay Mazel, who I love, and I know Jay for many years. He's in his 80s now. Uh, but he said something once that I thought was really amazing. And I share this oftentimes when I speak with to audiences and students. And he said, uh, if you want to make better photographs, become a more interesting person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really great, you know, like how diverse is your ability at conversation? How curious are you? You know, all those things will fuel your artistic endeavors. So I think that's like probably the most sage advice I could give any photographer.
0: Yeah, I just want to say it's been an honor to have you on my show. This has been just fantastic to listen to your passion for your career and what you've done. You're an icon in the industry in my eyes, and I just want to say thank you for being on the show.
1: Sure, I'm I'm honored to be on the show. Thank you,
0: listeners. If you'd like to donate to the uh, podcast, go to beforethelightspod.com/slash/donate. That's beforethelightspod.com/slash/donate. Follow us on Instagram at podcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. and until next time, everybody, I salute a jin jin